Father, would you make that true in our hearts? And not just in our words, that our whole lives would be given freely to you, that our joy, that our reason for existing, for living, for moving throughout the day, that it would all grow and flow naturally from who you are, from what you've done, and from our experiencing you face-to-face, up close in the details and the moments of our lives. And so uh, you said that if you're lifted up, you would draw everyone to yourself. And, and you followed through on that. You were lifted up on a cross uh, on this place of shame and suffering. And that's where the world saw you. That, that, that was where you were at a high point where you could be seen. And you drew people to yourself through that. And now we want to be people who join you, who step into your life, into your death, even into your suffering, and continue to believe that when you're the one that's lifted up, when we join you there, that you will draw us and you will draw the world to yourself. So do that tonight and do that in our lives, do that in our world, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. It's good to be back. Um, just a little piece of information that you may or may not care about. When, when your perspective is up here, it feels a lot more spread out than when your perspective is down there. So if that, if that inspires you in any way in choosing your seat uh, as it relates to front and center aisle in the, in the Sundays ahead... That would be fine. Um, so I, uh, this is funny. I, I, a few months ago, I came across a Kickstarter campaign for pastors preparing sermons. And I won't get into all the weird, nerdy details of that and why such a thing might be necessary. Uh, but it looked cool. I've seen a dozen of these software programs for writing sermons, and they're all just way too complicated for me. Uh, but this one is, was very simple. And uh, kind of developed by some pastors, I guess, who were nerdy enough to know how to develop such things technologically as well. And it made a lot of sense, and it didn't cost much money, so I threw my money in. And, um, and I have an email address that I use for anything I have to sign up for on the Internet that I don't ever actually check. Uh, and that's my, my Kickstarter account is under that. And so I just discovered yesterday that this thing has been out for six weeks, and I didn't know it. So... Uh, so I tried it today, and it produces a title page for your sermon, which I've never done in my entire life. And b- below the title in my name, it says, No Big Idea, which there was, a, there was a place in the software to put the big idea of your sermon, and I would, I've never used the, ser- the software before. I just skipped over that. So hear or be warned. There's no big idea tonight. <clears throat> No, uh, the big idea is, is actually this. We've been talking about, uh, we started a few weeks ago into talking about what does it mean for us to really be the church? What's the identity of the church? Uh, and we kind of focused in on this, this phrase that we would be people who are following Jesus in biblical community for the redemption of the world. And then 
uh, wanted to talk in specific ways moving through these week, early weeks of the fall, what that looks like. And specifically for the life of us as a church, that means we're people who worship. That means we're people who are on mission with Jesus. And that means we're people living in real biblical community. So we're kind of working our way through that. We've talked about worship for a few weeks, and this will be our last Sunday to talk about that. Uh, and I wanted to kind of seal our time of talking about worship uh, by talking about uh, what it means to be people who worship even when life here and now makes worshiping hard. Uh, We've talked about who we're worshiping that first week, that we're worshiping a God who isn't distant but who is up close and with us. And then we've talked about kind of the ways that we worship corporately, singing together, the ways that we worship in our individual lives, the way that we live as people whose lives are given to God as worship. And I, and I want to kind of bring that to conclusion this week by talking about when life makes it hard to do all of those things or to even believe that first thing that we talked about, that, that the being that we're worshiping is a God who's with us, who is up close and present and working redemption and good in our lives. What then? How are we people who worship? How do we do what we, what we sang about that next to last song? How do, we, how do we live and sing as though we're not overtaken? How do we sing on through the night when it feels like the night just won't lift and the sun won't come out? Uh, and that, my desire to talk about those things grew. Uh, it, was all, it was always on my radar, but it, it, it grew a lot out of the circumstances of my week. So Amy and the kids and I traveled to Nashville last weekend, and Amy and I, the main purpose of that trip, uh, not that we don't love the people that we know there, but Amy and I had been planning for a while to go to a concert at the Ryman, which was uh, a Rich Mullins tribute concert. September 19th was the 20th anniversary of Rich Mullins' death, and uh, so we, we Originally, she and I were just going to fly there and fly back for a couple of days, and flights were too expensive. The kids wanted to go see Cousins and the Kings and all of that, so we made a trip out of it. Anyway, Sunday night, the show was amazing, and I told Amy as we were driving home from it, I, I have a lot of things that I feel about it, but I don't want to say any of them in actual words yet because it will sound so cheesy uh, if I say them, and it would be phrases that sounds something like, that seems kind of what parts of heaven will be like, um, which when other people say that, I just, inside my heart, roll my eyes most of the time, if I'm totally honest. Uh, so I don't want to say those exact things, but uh, it, was, it was really beautiful uh, and worshipful. There was a different kind of worship experience than exactly what we do here. Uh, but I, I don't... In those moments, I felt, as you do when you have these experiences, I felt really close to the Lord. I felt really seen. I felt really confident in who the Lord is and what he's doing in the world, really hopeful, all of those things. Um, and then about 36 hours later, I got uh, the news that a friend of mine named Brad from years ago, I've known him since we were teenagers, um, had taken his own life on Monday afternoon, and uh, he's a year older than me. He has three kids, teenagers, uh, really bright, creative filmmaker, video production guy, 
incredibly happy, as far as anyone could tell. Uh, he's the kind of guy that everybody liked. I was at the visitation Friday night for his service and was talking to somebody about that, and there were hundreds of people there, um, and everybody liked him. They didn't all just, they weren't just there, but everybody there who knew him liked him, and I told somebody, like, I just don't know many people like that. I'm not that way. Uh, I know a fair number of people who respect me but don't like me very much, and somewhere along the way, I got okay with that. Uh, it doesn't upset me, uh, but he's just one of those people that, that was really loved and liked by everybody that knew him, and it doesn't make any sense. There's no explanation for what happened that's logical, um, and it's just empty. It's just like the, the, the it, it is, it's not the first time I've had this experience with a friend, and it is as empty a kind of grief as I've ever experienced or seen up close. Uh, so we were still in Nashville. I got that news, and uh, we still had to spend another day there and then drive home. And I haven't been with Amy since then. She came home early and then went back. It's been a crazy week for our family. Um, and so I haven't been with her to process any of that. I drove the kids all the way home on Thursday from Nashville. We got home about 1 in the morning, I think. I don't even remember. We had a wreck in Nashville before we ever left town that was kind of my fault. It's not legally my fault, but in my heart, I know... We'll take this off the recording in case any lawyers are scraping for information that uh, a hesitation that I made is what sort of set the chain of events in motion. And, um, and thankfully, we, we're okay. Everybody was okay, but some poor kid's car is totaled. And, um, anyway, it's been a weird week. It's been a hard week. And I came home and turned around Friday, drove right back to Fort Worth for this visitation and spent all day there yesterday with friends up there for the service, um, and uh, you know how that feels? I feel like a lot of us know how this feels. On the, I left out that on the drive home Thursday night, started getting texts that Maxima was burning to the ground in Port-au-Prince, and I was just like, this, really? Um, and, and it feels like there's so much hardship and loss and I go from an experience like Sunday night, which wasn't just an experience. It felt consistent with like where my life was moving and what the Lord was doing in my heart and our family and all this. I felt all of this joy and nearness to the Lord and this real ease in worshiping. And then just boom, 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 boom in a series of a few days. It's like the bottom dropped out of all of that. And I found myself at Brad's service yesterday morning with a band on stage leading worship songs. Um, and I know for some people, singing worship songs at funerals is weird anyway and uncomfortable, and that hasn't typically been the case for me. I'm able to, in some ways, engage more spiritually in those moments in different ways, and I couldn't sing yesterday morning. I couldn't worship. And there was no, like, overt, I'm angry with God, or none of this is true in my heart. It was just emptiness. There was just this vacancy uh, in my spirit that I had to like convince myself by the last song to sing the words so that my heart might hear my mouth singing the words and something might stir. Um, and uh, I, I, I just want to say that may not be where you are tonight, and, I, and I've hesitated at some level about uh, exactly how to come at this message because I think it's important. I think it's important for us as a people. Um, 
And I know that we have been in a hard season in one way or another for so long that some of you are just tired of even talking about it. You're ready to move on, and I'm ready to move on, and I, and I want to say that I think we, we have in some ways, and that we are, and I also want to say that we have absolutely no control over when the next really hard thing is going to set itself down in the middle of our life or our community. So if our response to the hard stuff is just trying to worship with blinders on and pretend like, oh, we got this figured out because we got over that hard thing or we got through that valley then we're not going to be equipped when the next one comes. And so I think it's important for us to deal honestly with these things and talk about them and talk about how these things have affected us because I have seen them affect me and I have seen them affect us as a people. I have seen us go through these things with enormous faith that I didn't know I had or we had or you had. And I've also seen us get on the other side of that and just feel like the bottom had dropped out and we don't know how to worship or be or make a list of things that were normal at some point that we no longer can really connect ourselves to or do in the same way. And I won't go through the list of hard stuff we've been through, but we've been through hard stuff as a community and it still impacts and affects us. And one of the things it impacts is our ability to worship, just like it did me yesterday morning sitting in that church. And it wasn't just because the band on stage was pretty bad, and they were, but if I die, please, the music has to be good. Right now, you and I are making a deal. I could, it wasn't just that. It was something else in my spirit. Um, and I've seen us go through that. And it, it's not just about singing. It's about the things that Scott talked about last week, about am I able to, in response to all of this that's happened around me, am I able to joyfully or just willingly or with any amount of faith give my life as a sacrifice and say God is worth it? I believe he is who he says he is, despite what I feel, what I see, what I've experienced. Am I able to continue to worship when I don't have control over my circumstances? And I, I want to go through just four scriptures that address this question, that address this struggle, that I think speak uh, not just in a, I think sometimes we come at this problem and we feel like we're scraping around the Bible looking for something that might give us some hope. There might be something there that speaks in kind of sideways to uh, the, the pain and the suffering and where God might be in that. It doesn't, it doesn't really fit the big picture narrative in some ways of, of what we're told about the gospel, that God is good, that he loves us, and he wants good things for us. Uh, this is our perception, I think, a lot of the time, that, that that's the story. And so when hard things happen, we have to look for these kind of supporting scriptures that might make sense of things. And I just want to say to you that I think the New Testament tells us to expect hardship and suffering and asks us to understand the gospel in the context of that. Instead of telling us a different story and leaving us with just scraps to try to piece together when the hard stuff comes. I don't think that's the message of Jesus, of the scriptures, or of the gospel. And so I want you to see in these four passages that message that we're told it is not going to be easy, but here's what that means because of Jesus. 
Let's start with Romans 5, which is one of the passages uh, that Astrid read for us just a moment ago. And in that passage, Paul says this. It's going to take me six months to get used to having the words on the wall back there instead of turning around and looking behind me. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is Paul's message, I think, about the gospel, um, about worship. And about suffering. He says we boast in the hope of the glory of God. That's worship. Okay? And, and whatever, however much you want to boil it down and, and, and whatever simple definitions you want to come up of, of worship, boasting in the hope of the glory of God is worship. So Paul says this is what we do. We, we worship. We boast in the hope of the glory. And that that's easy. That fits that, that, fits that storyline of God is glorious and we can boast and be. But the very next sentence, the very next thing he says is, not, ju- not just that, not just what seems big and amazing and glorious, but we also glory, glory in our sufferings, he says. And he tells us why. We can, it's, it's an absurd sort of statement. It's the kind of thing that outside the context of Christianity, if we walked up to people who were suffering and said, you really should glory in this. This is beautiful, this awful thing that just came into your life. Something has to turn this illogical statement upside down to give it some meaning, right? And he says the reason that we do that is because suffering produces perseverance Perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. And uh, the, the, the linear outcome of that is we glory in our sufferings because in a way that we could have never predicted and we can't control and only comes from God, suffering leads to hope, is what Paul says. He, he tells us that something about the gospel takes the very thing that makes us feel like our hope is being strangled. And it uses that thing to create hope, to turn us toward hope. And that's hard. I think it's hard for us, no matter how emphatically Paul says it or how much I tell you it's in the Bible, you should believe it. Um, I think it's hard for us to embrace that. I think two of the reasons it's hard to embrace that are, are, are this. One is we get lost in that sequence, right? Um, I haven't taken a math class since 1994, and it was a really low-level math class that A&M let me get a diploma in at their school with only taking one math class. True story. Um, but, but we get lost in that equation, that, that sort of sequence of getting from suffering to hope. Something in that between 
Suffering and perseverance, perseverance and character, character, hope breaks down for us. And so instead of getting to the end of the equation and having an answer that, oh, look, there's hope, just like they said it would add up to, we get to the end or we get somewhere along the way and what we have in our hands is doubt or disillusionment or discouragement or anger or fear. And it wasn't because we looked at this message on the front end and said, no way. It's just how life unfolded for us. Suffering came along. We may have even sort of written this verse down and put it on our bathroom mirror and prayed and hoped for it. And yet, somewhere along the way, we're thinking, surely we should be to the hope part by now. But all I have is brokenness. And I'm kind of done hoping for hope because that's exhausting, right? It's a, it, it, it will drain the life out of you to wait for hope and it not come. It's the one thing that can keep you going and you just can't get your hands on it. And I think it's a normal part of the process of facing suffering to get stuck in some of those places, definitely to experience the doubt and the discouragement and all those things. Uh, but I think the challenge for us is, is to not get stuck there uh, by leaning into our own understanding and assuming that our perception of reality is authoritative. Because ultimately, when we get stuck in, in, in doubt or discouragement, we're, we're stuck in our own, in this sort of echo chamber of what we perceive to be real that we cannot change. And we can't see beyond that. We can't imagine a reality bigger than our circumstances. And, and so our experience, our sight, our understanding becomes the authority. It says, this is all that's true, this is all that's real, and that produces despair for us. No matter your doubts about God in particular, and I've had plenty, and it's normal to have those, um, I think logically we could all agree that we don't, that I don't, and you don't individually have an authoritative understanding of what's really happening around us and why. We have some understanding, but to say that we fully understand what has happened to us or what is happening in us or around us and we, f we fully understand why would be a lie. None of us can claim that kind of understanding. Um, so when we, when we bog down there and we sort of surrender to despair and doubt because we can't make sense of things and because what we see is too difficult, we ultimately just are putting faith in ourselves instead of God. We're saying, okay, what I see and what I experience is all there is. Instead of our faith being placed elsewhere. And so I think it leaves us with a choice. Uh, if we can only worship, I talked about some of this a few weeks ago, but if we are only able, if you are only able or willing to worship a God who prevents all pain, then it's over. If that's it, if that's, your, if that's your limit, if you can't worship a God who doesn't shield us from all pain, then the God that we worship is not for you. And I don't know that there is a God for you because I don't know anybody walking through life not experiencing some pain. So that leaves us with this choice. We can either say no thanks to this God who, what we know about him at least, is that he isn't preventing all pain. 
He's different than my preference in that area. Or we can acknowledge that that God might know better than us, that he might have a reality that's greater than the one that we can see and the one that we feel and experience every week, every day. And that he won't waste our hardship. And we can give him a chance to reveal how that stuff is true, however impossible it seems. That's the choice I think we end up with in these moments of despair, is to either surrender to our own understanding of things and say, well, since God won't do this, I'm out. Or, or we can be open to a God who knows better, sees more, and has something bigger and better for us. The second thing that I think makes it hard to believe what Paul says here in Romans 5 about glorying in our sufferings and our sufferings leading to hope um, is what he ends up addressing at the end. In the beginning of verse 5, he says, and hope does not put us to shame. And I think that most of us at some point along the way run into a moment where we think, okay, I think I can convince myself to hope in God despite everything that's happening but, but man, is he going to leave me stranded? Am I going to look like a fool? Am I going to be a fool? Am I going to give my whole life to this hope and then find out he didn't come through? I think we struggle at times believing that this kind of hope that the gospel calls us to will put us to shame, that it will let us down, that it will make fools out of us. And Paul tells us here that it won't. And it won't because God pours his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say you won't be put to shame because whatever is hard for you will physically be undone in the next three years. That people will always be able to see in the way that the world defines hope and shame and success and failure that God came through. He says, that hope will not disappoint you because you're going to experience the love of God poured into you by the Holy Spirit. So the looming question for us, I think, is can we face suffering and not surrender to it based on um, what we're dealing, the, the idea that what we're dealing with is all there is and all there is going to be? And um, can we face it believing that our hope for something more will not leave us as bleeding fools along the way. Uh, there's a story that I just heard um, about, apparently somewhere in Ireland there is, uh, th there is this very sort of sacred book of Irish history, and you can go look at it, and this story originates there. But um, in the year 445, St. Patrick, the real St. Patrick, who was not a leprechaun, um, was... Uh, going through, he was on a mission, and a lot of people were coming to Jesus, and he entered uh, a little kingdom, and there was a king in this little part of the kingdom named King Angus, and uh, he had heard about Jesus, and he had heard that St. Patrick was coming, and he knew a little bit about uh, the story, and he came, and he, and he was with St. Patrick, and he heard the gospel, and he Believed, and he asked for St. Patrick to baptism, to baptize him, and, and Patrick agreed. And uh, they got sort of this ceremony ready to baptize the king, which I assume is a big deal when that kind of thing happens. And St. Patrick traveled around with a big staff 
that, you know, I assume had some sort of decorative element on top, but it had a big iron spike on the bottom of it. And so when he would go somewhere, he would like put his staff in the ground and that would be like his, you know, I'm here and I'm about to bring it sort of moment, I guess. Uh, and so they're getting ready to baptize the king and St. Patrick steps up next to him. And he's about to begin, and he puts his staff in the ground, and he puts it right through the foot of the king uh, when he does it. And he has no idea that he's done it. Um, And the story goes, and this is taken as history, not fable, as far as I can tell, that the king didn't flinch, that he didn't move, he didn't complain, he didn't have St. Patrick beheaded, uh, which might be my first impulse in such a situation. Uh, In fact, the story, the king just stood... (laughs) Um, so still the, the story, there's poetry that was written about the way the king responded. And it says, the royal foot transfixed the gushing blood, enriched the pavement with a noble flood, which is what I hope someone writes about me if I ever bleed all over the place, right? Um, a pretty poetic way to say that there, he's bleeding out through his foot. Uh, but when everything finished, uh, and... Uh, they, they, they assume, I assume they were not dunking the king, but uh, sprinkling him. So they got through, he's baptized, they got through the ceremony, um, and they, St. Patrick <laughs> realized that his staff was in the foot of the king. Um, Angus, he was apologetic, and Angus just replied that, I just thought it was part of the ceremony, <laughs> um, and didn't really consider the pain to be anything but part of the experience. Um, And uh, I wonder (laughs) if we could understand things just a little bit through the eyes. Not that I think we're to expect a saint or Jesus himself to come and drive a stake through the foot, but can we be people who begin to understand that the experience will come with pain, but there's something bigger that's, that's insignificant. There's something bigger coming along. The writer of Hebrews tells us, uh, in fact, that that's true, that our suffering is deeply connected to the gospel, to our hope. Hebrews 2.10 says this, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom all things exist in bringing bringing many children to glory should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. It was fitting that when God came to save us, He should make the one who he sent to save us perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father. For this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them, that's us, brothers and sisters, saying, I will will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. This all connects back to what I talked about that first Sunday, that we're worshiping a God who is with us, not a God who is just out there. But he came and was one of us. Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Our salvation, moving through suffering, made sense to God. God sent Jesus to undo our pain from the inside is the essence of that message. 
And Jesus embraced that. Jesus accepted that mission. He accepted being among us, being one of us, and being part of that undoing of our suffering by joining our suffering, by being one of us. He's saying to us, I'm one of you, I'm with you, I'm saving you from the core of this suffering human existence. So now, I think what this means, all the loss that we experience, even death itself, is this is not all that suffering is, but one thing that it is, is it's a reminder that Jesus is working within those things to undo them completely from the inside. And this, the writer of Hebrews says, should free us from slavery, from the fear of death. And and the scriptures tell us it will free us ultimately from death itself. So I think what that can mean, what that should mean for us at some point, it's, it's natural to be afraid of suffering. It's natural to be afraid of death. And being told that Jesus came and experienced that alongside of us, though an encouragement isn't an automatic cure to that fear. But I think the message of the gospel, the experience of Jesus coming and being with us, of suffering with us and on our behalf and inviting us in and walking hand in hand through all of that, I I think all of that can transform our fear of suffering and death to, to something more like an ache. I don't think it's something that takes away the pain completely. I don't think it's something that stops us from weeping in the face of suffering, in the face of death, the deaths of people we love, in fear of our own death, in all of these sort of little, not actual human deaths, but little deaths that we experience and see and feel around us. I think the fear becomes something more like an ache for a redemption, that even the suffering itself tells us redemption has to exist from I think this is one of the things that the Spirit starts to whisper into our souls over time when we're listening, is that even the worst of suffering is a reminder that there has to be a redemption for this. This cannot be all there is. And Jesus came and sat in that with us to work that redemption from the inside out. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul offers what I think is the clearest and most extraordinary description of the human experience and where the gospel fits in as it relates to all of this. He writes this, but we have this treasure in clay jars so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. But just as we have the same spirit of faith that is in accordance with the scripture, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we speak because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will bring us with you into his presence. Yes, 
everything is for your sake so that grace, as it extends to more and more people, may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. And he ends this little passage this way. So we do not lose heart. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. I want you to like take hold of that phrase because that's, that's, we'll talk about one more thing, but that's where I want us to sort of end. This slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. Because we look not at what can be seen, but what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. Paul says here, first of all, that, that whatever power we're talking about that enables us to do this and to see this way is from God. It's not from us. So we're on a supernatural track here already, and we have to agree to be on that track. We have to agree to believe that there is something more than what we can do and we can see and we can imagine that there is a God who is working another reality that we can't always see or understand. We're afflicted, though, he says. We have this power of God. It enables us to see why we're afflicted, but we're afflicted. We carry around this phrase is haunted me since I encountered it and and really caught it in a meaningful way for the first time. Uh, I don't remember. It was earlier this year or late last year. Uh, This idea that we carry around in our bodies the death of Jesus all the time. And I'm not going to... I spent some time on that, I think, at Easter. I think in this room. I'm in a weird deja vu. Um, And I, I can't fully explain what that means. But I can tell you that the Scriptures say it's true that we carry around in our bodies that crucified death of Jesus in some way. But, Paul says, we believe by faith, as the scriptures have encouraged us to, as others that the scriptures tell us about have done, we believe by faith that that is not wasted, that our carrying that death around in our bodies is not meaningless, that it's not punishment. He says, we believe by faith and so we speak, which is worship. (laughs) We believe and so we speak our belief, which is another moment of worship in these scriptures because Jesus will raise the dead because he will give life to our loss is the message here. And this whole plan, though it involves carrying around the death of Christ in our bodies, is ultimately beauty, is what Paul says. It's ultimately for our good. There's a... um, a musician who uh, I really like named Andrew Peterson. Some of you are familiar with him. It's a song in my, one of my favorite song lyrics written uh, in, in the last several years. Um, and just th- this one little part of the song says this. And when the world is new again and the children of the king are ancient in their youth again, maybe it's a better thing to be more than merely innocent, but to be broken than redeemed by love. Maybe this old world is bent, but it's waking up and I'm waking up. And I think that's, that's, Paul is telling us something like this in 2 Corinthians 4. Pure innocence was was the plan (laughs) all along. 
the lack of death, the lack of suffering was the plan all along. That changed a long time ago. It's not not where we live anymore. And the, the miracle, what we're able to see and believe in the supernatural is that we're not stuck with a plan B now. It's not that innocence was the plan, we blew it up, so there's this kind of modified, we're gonna get by. Somehow, some way, God makes the new plan as beautiful as the old plan, and that beauty is all of this brokenness. Whether it's my sin and my brokenness that I cause, or whether it's things that come that I don't invite, including death, all of this somehow, some way, will be made beautiful will be made unbroken because of the gospel. The glory stored up, Paul says, will surpass and even undo in ways that we cannot imagine our current pain. And I don't think Paul's making light when he, said, when he talks about these are sort of just temporary sufferings that you're experiencing. I don't think he's making light of our experiences. He's trying to give us vision for something. He's not taking that down. He's trying to give us vision for something above that that will make those sufferings not just seem less painful, but will actually turn them into something beautiful when we see what is is coming. And then in Colossians 2, he tells us how that's going to happen, how God has authority to make that true, to make all of those terrible things into something beautiful. We read this passage at the beginning I'm just going to read the last verse here. In verse 15, it says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, trying, triumphing over them in it. This is what Jesus has done to break the power of suffering and death and to make all of those things matter. I think that the, the essence of this um, for us as we go through hard stuff, uh, what, what our focus is typically, and this is just human, there's not, this is not a criticism. This is, if, if it was, it would be as much confession as criticism because it's still my impulse. When we go through hard stuff, um, our impulse is to figure out how we get out of it. How do I find my way out of this or avoid it if I can? But if I can't, how do I get past it? How do I get out of it? And I don't think that the message of the gospel is just that God's going to give you a way out of hard stuff. God's not just going to give us a way out of suffering. He is joining us, first of all, in our suffering. And instead of a way out of it, he's giving us a way into him, which is far better because that's, it's one thing to escape a hard thing. It's another thing to be part of that hard thing becoming beautiful and becoming untrue in a sense. C.S. Lewis, I posted this on social media last night, but C.S. Lewis wrote this in The Great Divorce. Some of us say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. This blows my mind. Um, but I'm convinced it's true. We don't, we don't talk a lot about heaven. I'm not sure why um, these days. 
And, I, and, and we are going to talk about it on Sundays a little bit more, especially as we get into talking about mission. Um, but, but I just want to say, in, in echoing this sentiment, uh, that our worship is about the future, not just the present. We are not just worshiping Jesus when we're here together or in the way that we give him our lives because of past tense and present tense facts. Those are a part of it. What he has done for us is everything. What he is doing for us is everything. What he is going to do is also everything. And it is essential, I think, to us making it through the past and the present. Can you lift your eyes beyond what has happened to you, what you have done that you can't forgive yourself for? Can you lift your eyes and see that there's more? Will you choose to despair that that this is all there is and I can't shake free of it? Or to see beyond, to, to see past this, to look over the horizon and see a coming hope and then to boast in the hope of the glory of God. And also to glory in our sufferings because we will see God work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. Can you believe that? Can you imagine that? Can you hope for that? Instead of settling for a story that won't promise you that, that says this is all there is and it's a really sad thing that happened. Can you allow the Spirit to inspire that kind of hope that sees beyond and sees As Lewis says, God working backwards and turning our suffering into glory because that's worship, that way of seeing, that way of hoping, that way of living is worship. Let's pray. Father, would you, uh, we stand as a people who... um, like your first followers and everyone since, whether we admit it out loud or not, say, I believe, help my unbelief. Would you fill us with faith tonight? Would you fill us with faith enough to believe that what has happened to us is not all there is, that what is happening to us now is not the end? that what we have done to other people that we can't forgive ourselves for, that we can't look them in the face, that we can't move forward in relationship, that it's not the end, that, that you have renamed us, that all we have to do is open that stuff up to you and ask for forgiveness. And it is ours. And as we sang, it's written on our hearts. We have been changed. Our identity is different. Would you give us faith to believe that that's true? Would you give us the faith to see beyond the present? And even when we're mourning, we're weeping, we're aching because things are not still not right in our circumstances, in our faith, in our relationships with one another, that we can cling to this hope that you are the one from the inside of all of that, cracking it wide open by the power of the cross and ultimately by the power of the resurrection and your returning kingdom, you are going to make all the broken things whole. All the sad things 
untrue. And may we respond to that with worship. May we look at you. May we see Jesus and his great love for us and receive it and give it what it's worth because it's worth everything. It's worth our whole life. So make us people of faith and people of worship. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.